Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, welcome everyone. You are listening to Energy Matters and I am your host, Caroline Rutterman. And we are here today with a very special guest, uh, Maria Malaguti of the um, the Lyme Disease Resource Center. And Maria is the founder and executive director. So welcome, Maria. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. I'm, I'm really excited to that you're here. We can learn all about the Lyme Disease Resource Center. Well, I guess we can start with our our mission Yes, is to be a peer-guided, supportive, and safe place for those living with Lyme disease, their care partners, and we share strategies and resources for living well. Uh, Part of our programming is uh, we offer free holistic therapies. And so... When you're kind of talking about this um, kind of larger education center, how how many people a month, like a year, are are you serving? Like, what is? Do you guys have like? I mean, I feel like everyone I know has had Lyme disease at some point. Sometimes it's a, a quick, acute case where they pull something out. Sometimes it's pretty severe. Um, what kind of traffic do you guys get? Uh, We get over 700 people a year via the internet, uh, Facebook, uh, telephone, email. Um, Usually our clients tend to be chronic illness patients who've been searching for answers for a long time and having difficulty finding the support they need. Um, But we also get uh, people who just got a tick bite. What do I do? How do I remove the tick? Uh, where do I go? Um, and those are the kinds of questions we can answer. Yeah. And, you know, when, when people are, let's answer that question. How do people safely remove a tick? I mean, we're, we're in prime season right now. People are getting outside. They're going for hikes. I mean, I was home yeah. and one of my parents, um, you know, pulled off a tick right off of our dog, you know, that was, you know, so it was kind of, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it was in their backyard, um, but what is the what's a safe way to for tick removal? Let's let's get that right on the table. So there are some great videos online, um, tickreport.org, and uh, University of Rhode Island uh, Tick Encounter both have videos on how to safely remove them. It involves having a set of fine tipped tweezers. You want to take the tick by the head, not the body, and gently pull straight up. You don't want to twist. You don't want to squeeze the body. You don't want to disrupt the tick in any way other than that gentle pulling motion. And then so it's just a really simple, straightforward method, not getting too fancy with it. Correct, but it can be difficult because the nymph ticks are tiny, the the size of poppy seeds. So grasping those ticks by the head is a difficult maneuver. Okay. And so, you know, when people are kind of getting into these situations, this is a lot of stuff that 
we should be prepared ahead of time, right? You know, like, because it's, you don't want to go to have to run to the store when you have already a tick in your, in your body. You want to make sure you have those tweezers in advance. Absolutely. Um, having a tick first aid kit is uh, really important. Um, having some kind of tape, two-sided tape, uh, or a lint roller is really great when you're coming back in from being outdoors. Um, you can often get the nymphal ticks before they even bite you. Um, having that fine tip pair of tweezers and there's different brands that people can purchase um, anywhere from the local uh, pharmacy to a big store um, or even mail order uh, online. Um, and um, having a tick repellent and if you're Tending towards a more holistic approach, you would use um, essential oils. And even if you go to the CDC website, there's a listing of carefully researched essential oils that are effective as tick repellents. Um, for a more chemical approach, you'd use permethrin on your clothing and DEET on your skin but only your exposed skin. Um, there's also a, a new product called Picardarin, and it's, uh, it's an extract from hot peppers. And I've been using that. It has no scent. It doesn't leave a rash. Um, very effective. And so I guess my method, maybe you can tell me if you, what you think of my, my method of post-hiking. Typically, I when I come home for a hike, I usually hike um, most days, I would say. But oftentimes, I'll just change out of my clothes, and then maybe I'll hop in the shower. Do you think, is there effectiveness in just switching clothes or, you know, like taking a quick shower? Or should I be doing like a full body sweep after I come back in? You really, uh, particularly this year when it's been very damp and cool, um, there's been uh, recordings that it's going to be a very bad tick season. When you come in with your clothes from hiking, you're dragging in possible ticks uh, and pests in those clothes. So those clothes should go immediately into a hot dryer for at least 10 minutes, um, 20 minutes even better. Hot water will not kill them. Um, a hot dryer will desiccate them and kill them. Okay. So it's um, going to bring out the tough guns with that. Definitely. If you don't have a dryer handy, sealing them in a plastic bag. Um, so you're not spreading ticks around your home. Um, same with your pets. Thorough tick check when you come back from your walk. Um, avoiding tall grass, um, dense brush, avoiding piles of leaves. Those are the places where ticks like to hide. Brushing up through those um, can uh, cause an infestation and it they will crawl upward and um, people find them in their hair, people find them on their back. Um, you can get bitten just about anywhere. Yeah. I, I've heard that, you know, ticks like to climb, climb into those sort of like dark crevices that we can't 
see them very easily. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's important to, I guess, have somebody else take a look in those places that are a little hard to reach. Uh, Yeah, if you've been hiking, um, it's very important. And the, the hot shower, if you're alone, the hot shower, taking your time, doing as thorough a tick check in all those crevices and dark places, moist places that um, something could be hiding. Um, The same with your hair. You want to wash it thoroughly um, to make sure nothing's gotten in it. Um, To prevent that type of thing happening, you can wear light colored clothing, tuck your pants into your socks. And again, um, I, I happen to be allergic to permethrin, but um, permethrin uh, treated clothing can be very effective in repelling ticks. That's great. Love love technology for on so many levels. So, um, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Energy Matters on WXOJLP 103.3 FM Northampton. And we're here with Maria Malaguti of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. And Maria, I just, you know, one of the issues that I always have a lot with like, you know, tick season and going outside, how do we balance this kind of fear of ticks and this fear of Lyme disease, which is real for a lot of people and really challenging with this kind of like fear around, you know, ticks and tick checking and this kind of stuff and still enjoying nature. Like how, how do we kind of wrangle that, you know, those fear-based reactions? Cause that's not helpful either. Exactly. Uh, I tell my clients that they should compare it to going out in the sun. When you go out in the sun, you put on sunscreen, you're not thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get sunburned and I'm going to get skin cancer. You're thinking, I'm going to protect my skin. And um, you're you're vigilant about not spending too much time in the hot sun or exposing too much skin um, or getting a sunburn. Um, People should treat the outdoors in the same way with respect, but not a fear-based approach and and oftentimes it takes people time to get over that fear it can be almost a post-traumatic stress reaction to someone who's been ill with Lyme disease or a tick-borne infection I believe that 100% I can see how that would be scary to potentially go back to a place where you could get really sick again yeah absolutely so um Maria, tell us a little bit about how how you came to found the Lyme Disease Resource Center. Um, you know, why why did you feel like it was your mission to kind of bring this educational resource to the Northampton area? I was bitten back in 1997 and wasn't treated for a year, and I got very sick. Um, back then, there wasn't much information. Uh, the doctors didn't know what to do with me. Um, over the course of the year that I was left untreated, other things happened. Um, and when they finally discovered what was going on, I was only treated for one tick-borne illness, not the three that they had tested for and I tested positive for. Um, so wait, you, so, you tested positive for all three and they only gave you treatment for one. Correct. I, I was tested positive for Lyme, Bartonella, and Ehrlichia. And um, 
at the time they assumed that the antibiotic I was taking for the Lyme would be effective for the other issues. And it was not. Um, I would be, I would feel angry (laughs) if I was, if I experienced that, I would probably feel really angry towards my physician. There, there was a lot of ignorance back then, and there still is today. It's a complex issue. It's not just Lyme disease. There's many co-infections. Um, the longer someone is sick uh, and left untreated or undertreated, the more things that can go wrong with your immune system. Um, we're seeing similar issues happening with uh, COVID patients, and they're called long haul uh, COVID patients. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's really shining COVID shining a light on the uh, problems with our current healthcare system, and um, I at the time I did blame the system. I blamed my doctors. I blamed the government. I blamed everybody. Um, and I was very angry and it, it wasn't a good place to heal from. And uh, over time, I connected with holistic healers in addition to some functional medicine practitioners, along with some specialists, and built a team of doctors and, and practitioners And that worked really well for me because I wasn't just taking a pill and saying, oh, I'm going to get better. I was taking a multifaceted mind, body, uh, spirit approach to healing. And it did lead to um, about five years of remission. Um, So it it was a very effective way of dealing with it. And, And during the initial years that I was sick, I started to build a a resource library and um, it it was, wasn't until I moved out to Northampton in 2006 and started attending some support groups for Lyme disease that I thought about, you know, gee, there, there should be something more for Lyme patients than just going to a support group once a week or once a month. Um, there must be a better way to get all this information out to people. And uh, I did notice that we had the Cancer Connection, which is a wonderful resource in the Valley. And I I said to my friends in the group, why isn't there a place like that for Lyme patients? We really need this. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And so that was the, the birth of the idea of the Lyme Center. That's very cool. And I'm sure it probably took a lot longer to get your your 501c3 together and all the nonprofit kind of status things that, that take, you know, quite a bit of effort. I, I guess I should back up with the story that um, when I first got sick, I was bedridden for two years. Wow. So I, I had been working in the theater in Boston uh, backstage and... Um, doing some retail on the side to fill in my, my downtime. And uh, that's when I got sick. And uh, at the time, stressful relationship, not eating right, not sleeping right. My job was very stressful. Um, 
it it led to the dominoes that went over when I got bitten by that tick when I was backpacking. And I, I also was very anti going to the doctor. <laughs> um, so that didn't help. Um, my, my original physician had said, oh, I'm going to give you antibiotics. And I thought I just had the flu. And I said, oh, I'll stay in bed and have some chicken soup and I'll be fine. Um, famous last words. <laughs> um, I was living in Plymouth, Massachusetts at the time and um, decided about 2006 that I needed a change. Moved to Northampton. The area was familiar from uh, when I went to school. And um, by that time, I had built a home-based graphic arts business um, utilizing the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. Um, I was on disability at that time. I was getting benefits. Um, I had Section 8 for housing and food stamps. And um, so I was accessing all the supports I could and trying to get back to work. And once I moved out here and got connected with the Lyme community, um, I started getting phone calls. How did you get back to work? What doctors did you see when you went into remission? Um, what kind of protocols were you taking? I, and it was taking more of my time doing that, answering those calls than my business. And so I went back to the Mass Rehab Commission and uh, they sent me to New England Business Associates in Springfield. And between those two organizations and a past plan from Social Security, I was able to go back to school. Um, I did remote learning and got a certificate in nonprofit management. Congratulations. Um, with the, the now defunct Marlboro College. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. Which was also where I got my BA at Marlboro College, but that, that's how I knew about Northampton. Um, developed a business plan and um, gathered seven people together for a board of directors. And it took us a couple of years, but in September, uh, October 22nd, 2013, we got our 501c3 status with the IRS. Congratulations. It was a lot of work. Um, it's very expensive to launch a nonprofit. Um, you also have to register with the state, uh, the attorney general, secretary of state. So there, there was quite a bit to it. Um, and we still have retained our small size because it is, um, it's a process and you go through boards of directors and um, things morph and grow. But we have retained our original mission and um, have leveled off at around 700 people, serving 700 people a year. That's amazing. I mean, I also feel like the numbers of people that experience Lyme are, you know, I mean, it's, it's huge. Those numbers are huge just in Massachusetts. So I love that even in our little area that you have, 
you know, such a great online presence as well as, you know, obviously before COVID, um, you know, having availability for people to actually get this holistic healing. Um, and, um, so, so in this kind of like whole process, like where, and I know you kind of talked about having, you know, a period of remission from when you got bit, uh, in 96, having a, a solid five years of when you were in full health, um, and then kind of have fluctuation of sy- symptoms for all these years. Um, how do you find the like the mission and the drive to still carry on like building a nonprofit and really getting this larger? I mean, because it takes a huge resource of energy to like put new things out into the world. So how did how did you kind of negotiate um, your own kind of self care and needing that extra rest and that extra kind of downtime with putting such a big project into the world? The original business plan was structured around my disability, and um, the the key point was being able to work from home quite a bit, um, to limit my hours of availability, and uh, COVID has actually helped with that, that uh, I work from home quite a bit, and I'm not in the office as often. The, the office is more of a glorified bookkeeping room (laughs) um, until we can reopen again. And um, we're being very cautious about reopening as well. Um, And also having a volunteer pool large enough to serve the times that we're offering things in the office is critical. And, And that was the downside of COVID. We lost a lot of our volunteer pool when the colleges closed down. So, um, so Maria, tell us a little bit about some of the offerings. I know that the holistic therapies were a huge part of your journey. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious as to the different volunteers that come in to support people who are experiencing Lyme. Um, so, so I'd love to tell uh, for us, for you to share kind of some of the things that you've had that you have currently, um, as a service and maybe even some things in the past, cause I know everything's in flux still in everyone's um, lives. It, the holistic therapies has gone virtual. Um, there's a couple of our providers who are offering limited uh, in-person uh, and they're taking all safety protocols uh, due to COVID. Um, when we had it in the office, it was, uh, we have a small 400 square foot office and each client would have one-on-one time with their provider and the office would be theirs exclusively. And um, we had a number of therapies, some of which are still available, uh, neuroemotional technique with NET with Anna Maria Irvine. Uh, Christina Shepard is offering uh, root cause, uh, her, her business root cause, Biomagnetic therapy. Um, Daphne Bai offered somatic experiencing. John Cohn offered some integrative energy sessions. I love John Cohn. He's been on Energy Matters in the past. He's a wonderful guy and super talented. He is so awesome. Um, and we also had Marianne Reif, who did uh, EFT tapping, and Meta Bob. 
who did biodynamic cranial sacral. And we're hoping with things starting to slowly opening up, up um, to bring these therapies back online again. Um, but people can always reach out to us and see what's available um, either via Zoom or in person. And um, before the break, um, Maria, you were talking about how um, you really built out your team of professionals, whether it was the holistic care, the doctors that you felt comfortable working with. Um, at that time in your life, what what holistic therapies really worked for you? Like who who were your kind of like magic people that you were like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I had a fabulous naturopath back in Plymouth. Um, an acupuncturist, uh, and my naturopath also did uh, cranial sacral therapy, which was awesome um, with the healing. Um, lots of homeopathy um, and herbal treatments too. Yeah. Were there any, um, it, was this all out in Boston or was this out here when you were kind of building out that early team? This was in the Plymouth area the Plymouth, okay. originally. Um, I, I've shifted some of my protocols. Um, and, I, you know, I encourage the clients again to really research these protocols because not all of the practitioners uh, are line literate or are certified in some way. Um, everybody has different levels of education and certification so that um, people need to, re to research the background of the practitioner they're seeing. But, but also, is this a good fit? Um, almost like dating, you know, are the personalities going to mesh? Because you'll never get better if the practitioner you're seeing, you're not on friendly terms with them. Yeah. I always tell people, you should like the person that you're working with. <laughs> I, I know, I know it's like, so, you know, especially in the field of Reiki, for example, it's, you know, it's, it's a little unregulated, which I like in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, you really, really have to trust your vibes. Like, is this, is this person going to help me just because it's a referral or I've heard good things? Like, does this feel like it's a good fit for me? Do I, do I like them? And I, you know, I tell people that because I want them to trust their instincts, you know, because so much of Western medicine and Western care is the doctor telling the patient, I know what's good for you instead of me knowing what's good for me. So, you know, I, I try to tell people if, if you like them, that that's that's a clue. Absolutely. And, and, and even for the Western doctors, I have Western doctors on my team who are open-minded about the holistic therapies that I do use. And uh, I think it's important to have someone who they may not know everything about the therapy you're utilizing, but they are willing to learn or they're willing to accept the patient's judgment. Yeah. And, you know, when you when you kind of, you know, the, the words that you used a moment ago, when somebody is Lyme literate, how what is that understanding for you as a professional in this business ed, as education in the Lyme Disease Resource Center? Like what makes somebody Lyme literate? 
I think at this point in time, it means someone who's open to the newest and latest research. Um, there's some really exciting things going on now that the funding has opened up. Um, and there is more opportunities through ILATS, the International Alignment Associated Disease Society, uh, for doctors to take educational programs. Um, there's so much more uh, data in the knowledge base that is science-based um, that doctors can access. Uh, but but the problem with the current Western medicine system is doctors don't have time to educate themselves. They're, they're more involved in bookkeeping and um, how many patients they've processed through to keep the insurance company happy uh, rather than establishing a really good rapport with their patients. And um, hopefully that can change uh, as we move forward. And I, again, I'm, I'm referencing COVID, uh, that it was a big wake-up call for the flaws in our system. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of mentioned a, a moment ago that, um, you know, of some of these kind of cutting-edge things that are happening now that the funding is opening. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of those things that just lit you up a moment ago that, that feel really exciting uh, in, in the, whether it's research or, or otherwise? Um, there's quite a few national and international organizations that are fundraising for the scientists, for the schools. Um, money is coming out of Washington now. Uh, there's a task force down in Washington that's an advisory to improve the funding, which up until now was minuscule for Lyme disease. Lyme was considered an easily cured short-term issue. And all the co-infections were disregarded as part of the issue of Lyme disease. And, and I, I think part of it is we've never gotten a good label for Lyme and tick-borne illness when it goes chronic. Um, and then there was a smaller group of doctors with the Infectious Disease Society that said, you know, set very strict parameters of what constituted Lyme disease and what constituted treatment of Lyme disease. And it, it was far too restrictive for what was going on with the patients. Yeah. And what, I mean, this might be sort of a much larger topic, but what was the, what was the kind of moment that all this funding started opening up? Was there like some senators that were really campaigning super hard for these, like how, like, what was it that made this open up to the public consciousness and the money behind it? I, I think in the past five or 10 years, there's been a lot of politicians in their families that have gotten sick. There's been a lot of celebrities that have come forward who've been very ill um, and, and had to go through the same hell that the person on the street has gone through. Um only that they were fortunate enough to have the money to get the treatments they needed and to dig a little deeper to uh, heal. And those celebrities are actually donating and funding some of the research, um, which is, has been so critical to, to bring awareness. Yeah. And, you know, I think that... Um, I think it's sometimes really hard for people, you know, like myself, I've, I've been healthy for most of my life, you know, 
what is the the best way because you referenced you know the chronic Lyme and these really like ongoing symptoms of like years worth of figuring out what the diagnosis is that it looks like other things you know Lyme is kind of called the great imitator because it has all these kind of different symptoms that emerge differently for everybody. Um, so, you know, when you kind of frame frame it as this kind of invisible disability, um, how, how can somebody who has been healthy for most of, of my life, how can I support people who are dealing with ongoing Lyme um, that I'm not going to accidentally dump my own stigma or my own stuff on them? Like, what are, what are some ways that I can kind of broaden my awareness and supportiveness to, to people who are going through that? Not just this, but like for everybody, but, you know, because we're talking about Lyme. I, I, I think with hidden disabilities and Lyme and tick-borne illness is certainly a part of that or can be a part of that. Um, listen to the person who's telling you about their pain um, or their symptoms and believe them that they are experiencing those symptoms and that it's not in their head. Um, I, I think there's a lot of psychiatric manifestations um, because of these infections, but that doesn't mean that it's not driven by an infection. And um, one of the biggest problems we face as peer counselors at the center is people coming to us and saying, you know, my my husband doesn't believe me, my wife, my family, um, I'm abandoned by my friends. Um, they don't understand why I have to cancel at the last minute. And I just, I'm so fatigued, I can't go on. Um, listen, listen to the person and really believe that they're telling you the truth. Yeah. That can be really hard for people to listen <laughs> and trust and believe, you know. Well, the, the other piece is you can educate yourself. So if your friend comes to you and says, I have Lyme disease and I have all these crazy symptoms, um, there are places you can go resources to educate yourself about, oh, my friend isn't the only person experiencing this. Um, you know, again, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, ILADS.org, has a great resource site. Uh, LymeDisease.org has a great resource site. Um, we have those links on our website um, and more that um, read about these things, educate yourself, and um, help your friend or family member get the help they need. Yeah. Be, be there for them. Yeah. And, you know, Maria, the, you know, on your website, on the Lyme Disease Resource Center, um, you know, the, there is a kind of a section that really talks about that is inclusive of patients care for their partners, right? So like the caregivers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the role of um, somebody's caregiver, whether it's your husband or wife or long-term partner? Um, what's the role that, how, how do they need to be supported and how can they support? I guess it's sort of a, a twofold question. Um, but, yeah. Caregiving is one of the hardest jobs. Um, I've been both a caregiver and someone who's in need of a caregiver. And um, it, the 
emotional and physical toll it can take on a person. Not everyone is able to do it. Um, and so being there offering those free holistic therapies or free peer counseling sessions or um, just answering some, some questions and sending them to the right therapist or the right uh, support system can go a long way for them being there for the patient. And um, definitely if you're a caregiver and you're feeling burnt out, um, there are countless places online that are uh, resources specific to the caregiver rather than the patient. Yeah. It's important to remember the people that are taking care of us, you know, because, yeah, it's it, like you said, it's very easy to get burnt out and, you know, to push yourself because people need you and life continues and you got to get ready for school and work and all those extra things that really add up. And then the emotions can be the last thing that get addressed. Yeah. And when our office is open, we do have a library of holistic books. Um self-care and um, different um, spiritual books, spiritual support. Uh, again, um, healing from this is a mind-body-spirit um, combination. You can't just take a certain protocol or a certain pill and say, oh, I'm going to get better. It, to get this sick, to have your body um, betray you in this way, there's layers that you have to peel back and really take a good look at how you're living, how you're feeding your body, how you're feeding your spirit. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, Jewish or Catholic or, you know, a religion. It, it's, um, it's more than that. It's bigger than that. Um, so before we went on break, you mentioned something very like, caught my my interest you you were starting to talk about self-care and how we we nourish ourselves with food and then how we we kind of nourish ourselves on a, on a spiritual level so can you tell us a little bit about how um you know if, if somebody's kind of experiencing lyme uh one how can we kind of support ourselves with nutrition and and what is this kind of extra layer of uh the kind of spiritual nourishment that you were referring to so from a food standpoint, uh, that looks a little different to each patient and really needs to be tailored to their particular needs. Um, there's a lot of things that can be helpful, um, but it's best to work with a dietitian or nutritionist uh, who is, again, Lyme literate and understands all the different issues that are going on with the person's body. Um, a lot of times as tick-borne illness patients, we're dealing with inflammation. So the diet is often tailored to cut out anything that's going to cause more inflammation. That makes sense. So that's a lot of white, white sugar, white flour, yeah, uh, Americans eat a lot of processed foods, a lot of sugar, heavy on the salt. Um, although, ironically, uh, myself, I need more sodium because of some issues that I have. Um, so, again, it's there's no one 
perfect diet that would fit each patient that they should reach out to a practitioner who is more skilled in um, in that kind of dietary um, structure for them. And it, it will be helpful in um, soothing the symptoms that they're they're experiencing. Yeah. Get your body as strong as possible, underlying, give it all that good fuel and, you know, give it an extra, an extra edge. Oh, absolutely. Um, And from the spiritual standpoint, that can relate to food as well, because a lot of times we're looking at food as, oh, God, I have to cook dinner or, um, oh, I don't have time to eat. I'm going to stop at McDonald's. Um, That looking at food more of something that you're carefully preparing or you're having your care partner carefully prepare and um, taking your time to digest and properly consume your food and and appreciate your food. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think very much, you know, sometimes I, you know, eat little quick bites over the sink or when I'm in my car driving and that's, I know that I'm not appreciating my food in that, in those moments. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good reminder to really, you know, take, take the time to connect with how we're feeling ourselves and how we're feeling underneath it. In the, the whole mindfulness movement that's come up, um, over the past few years that that can be part of, you're cooking and you're eating, um, that incorporating mindfulness into that will go a long way towards healing. It's, it's not the cure, but it's part of, um, your healing path. Yeah. And, you know, so when people are kind of getting, returning back to health, with sort of long-term chronic symptoms, what it what is the what is the integration? What is like the, a, a healthy outcome for for people? Because it's going to look different for everybody, right? People don't necessarily want to go back to the life that they experienced before they got sick, right? So, um, what are kind of the the new new frameworks that people can recognize? Oh, this is this is health. Um, not being angry with your body. For, you know, a lot a lot of times when you go from being very active, type A personality, um, that was me, uh, and carrying a huge workload and stress load, um, that saying, oh, my body's giving me a warning that I need to look at how I'm living, look at how I'm going through the world, Um Our culture tells us that, you know, we have to work till we drop and it's terrible to nap and it's terrible to rest. Um, But when you're sick this way, those are the things that you need to nurture your body. And um, so you have to take a whole different perspective on um, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And what's what's right for you versus what's what's wrong for you and and being gentle with exercise and working back to health that if something doesn't feel right in your body you know no matter who tells you you should be doing this or that um that you you need to really trust your gut 
trust your instinct. If something doesn't feel right, then it probably isn't. Yeah. Um, and so if, if people are just tuning in and they want to learn more about um, the Lyme Disease Resource Center in Northampton, um, how, what, what's the best way that people can learn more information about, about you guys? Uh, definitely go to our website, Lyme Disease, uh, I'm sorry, LymeDRC.org, um, or they can call us at 413-588-7388, or they can email us at info at LymeDRC.org. Beautiful. So that's L Y M E drc.org <laughs> easy easy um beautiful and you know we're, we're kind of coming towards the the top of the hour do you have any last words of wisdom that you would like to throw out into the universe i think people sh- should learn to trust their instincts and people should listen to each other and be kind to each other it's so important in healing yeah. And how, how did you learn to trust your instincts? And how did you learn to kind of, um, you know, rely on that, that inner, that inner voice? It took me years to, um, of searching, soul searching and, and different therapies. And um, I don't want people to have to wait that long when they come to us to, to find the answers. And my wish is that our organization can provide resources so people don't have to wait to uh, learn how to care for themselves. Mm, I love that. Just do it now. Have all the resources at our fingertips and take that information and, and apply it in the way that is unique for us. And that's really what healing is. You know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not just a little box that we can fit ourselves into. It's got it. That's what we're escaping, right? You know, Absolutely. It, is that cookie cutter way of, of health. And we're, we're looking for the ways that it can adapt and, and evolve with along with us and who we are and who we're growing into. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Maria. Um, and again, if people do want to um, find a little bit more information to support themselves, their loved ones, or just to kind of stay in the loop with what's happening to people all around us all the time, um, you can always go on to Lyme DRC. That's L-Y-M-E-D-R-C.org. Um, and if you're just tuning in to Energy Matters, you can always go back um, to ReikiNorthampton.com and check out this or any other interview um, and, and catch the, the complete interview. Or if you're a podcast listener, anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts, you can find the Energy Matters podcast. It has a little Starburst logo. Uh, be careful because there's another Energy Matters podcast out there. Um, but uh, uh, this interview will be up. Uh, I think it's uh, it will be scheduled to go up in about two weeks. Um, so you can you can always tune into that as well. Um, but thank you again, Maria. Um, and I hope that you know people are able to connect with you and um, and to continue to educate themselves on this really amazing work that um, that you guys are putting out for the community. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share our organization. Yes, absolutely. All right. So be well, everyone.